the um, Air Force massive cargo plane took off from the Sinai Desert with a very interesting load in its cargo bay. They were moving non-combatants out of the Sinai Peninsula during the 1967 war between Israel and Egypt. They had in their cargo bay a group of Bedouins complete with camels, sheep, some goats, their tents. And as they lifted off into that morning sky, uh, they were rejoicing that they could get some non-combatants out of this, this war zone. And they're settling into their flight, and about 10 to 15 minutes in, there was a knock on the cockpit door. And one of the Bedouins had some cups of coffee for the pilots. And they thanked them, closed the door, joined their fine Arabica coffee as they flew away from the war zone. Then it hit them. How in the world did they make that coffee? So one of the pilots bolted back to the cargo bay, and there in the middle of the cargo bay floor was a fire. And a a bowling pot of water above that fire. Um, not, Not good. Fire is very good, though. Placement is important. In other words, a right context gives protection and containment and beneficial usage. Fire is good. Use and containment is important. And the same is true for language. Words uncontained without proper placement or context can lead to misunderstanding and confusion, and yes, the harm of in a fire of words that are uncontained. Examples that we have in our language of faith. Jesus was a man. True statement, but not wholly true. Jesus was God. True statement, but not wholly true. Jesus was God and man. Now that's wholly true. And here's another one. It's not about me. It's all about God. True statement. But not wholly true. Context is essential for full understanding. And I use this language in explaining the beauty of the light of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 7, a couple of weeks ago. Remember, the gospel is, is seen in these imperfect jars of clay. The glorious light of the gospel so it can be seen in a world. And it comes out of a imperfect and fallen flesh human beings. That the gospel of Christ will be seen. And it's all about him. It's all about him. True statement. Yet, the language contained in that statement can lead us to misunderstanding. Some of you have mentioned, if it's not about me and all about God, why do I even exist? Do I have value to God? If it's all about him, who am I to him? 
And the answers to these questions are found of all places in Matthew chapter 1 this morning. Let's try to bring some whole truth and understanding to that phrase. The gospel according to Matthew. The first book of the New Testament, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You see, the word for genealogy is literally Genesis. It can mean beginning or origin or birth. It is translated genealogy here as it reflects a recorded list of human history. And the echo is very clear. You have Genesis as the beginning and Matthew the new beginning. What God started in Genesis 1, he's continuing this creation record of humanity and this new beginning of now comes the Messiah that was prophesied from the beginning of time. And so we need to understand that while our lives should be all about God, it is he who has made us and we only exist because he made us. Yet he did make us. We are made in our jars of clay from the dust of the ground. And he chooses to work out his glorious redemption and salvation for us and through us. Think a minute about how great our God is. God is spirit and he is, he is beyond any human comprehension. In fact, Isaiah writes, your ways are not our ways, your thoughts are not our thoughts, is reflecting God speaking to him. What he's saying is we can't even imagine what God is up to in one context because God is spirit. He is beyond and beyond all of us. He is everywhere present. He's all-powerful. He spoke the world into being. He sustains us. He's perfect and just and true and holy and merciful, and gracious, and love, all these things just blows our minds away. And it causes us to to fall on our knees before this incredible, awesome God. And the only time we should use awesome, I think, is in that context. Absolutely unspeakable. This God who made us and whom we serve. Yet, this awesome God chose to make man in his image. Male and female in the image of his triune self. Let us make man in our image. And then even in that, when we were tempted by Satan, God's enemy of all that's good and holy, Adam and Eve fell and fellowship was broken and sin entered the world and these jars of clay became sin-tainted Imagine God made us in perfection. Instead of giving glory to him, we took glory to ourselves. Not only are these jars of clay sin-tainted, it's more like the walking dead. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us we are dead in our sins. But then due to his high, his very high value of creation, he has a rescue plan in place. Why would he do that? Because he loves his image bearers. This all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect, self-sufficient, merciful, holy, true, and just God 
loves us. 1 John 4, 8, understand one of his attributes. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. The very essence of God is love and we have value to him. And then this gospel of Matthew, we find out that this incredibly big and awesome beyond our human comprehension, this same God, and this is where the Jews had trouble when they talked to Jesus. He would say, I am that God. I am that God in human flesh. See me, you've seen the Father. I think that speaks clearly of our value to him. So Matthew 1 talks about how this God became one of us. And why did he become human flesh? And what was his plan? So look at verse 2 of Matthew 1. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And here we have a reminder from the first book of beginnings to this book of beginnings in Matthew, the importance of the messianic genealogy of Jesus Christ. Genesis 3, the seed and offspring will crush the head of Satan. Genesis 12 again, in in you the nations of the world will be blessed, God tells Abraham. Genesis 35, God confirms a promise to Jacob. 2 Samuel 7, he confirms the promise to David and his seed. We have in chapter 1 the whole outline, 14 generations times 3 up to this very time. God's promises are true. That's why the genealogy is there. Just don't blow through that. The understanding that, but father by father, generation by generation, God's promises are coming true. A note of verse 16, and Jacob, at the end of the genealogy, the Jacob and the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. It's very profound to know that Joseph is the husband of Mary. He did not carry the seed of the Messiah, as we'll see in a moment. How did this take place? And I ask us to look at this in a fresh way. We know the Christmas story, but see it in the context of what we studied in Genesis. Generation upon generation waiting for this moment. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, or in other words, engaged to be married, committed to be married, before they came together and she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. A woman chosen by God to bear the Son of God and notice out of wedlock. Look at verse 23 of Luke 1. I want us to get this story. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth 
to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, as any one of us would be, the angel of God appears to us and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You hear echoes of, of Noah there? Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord to continue his redemptive history through Noah's family. And now he's bringing the Messiah. Mary, you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This is going to be beyond Roman rule. This is not a Messiah for right now. This is a Messiah and a king forever. No understanding at that point. But the wonder and, the, and the, just the questions she must have had in her heart. What does this all mean? And Mary said to the angel, the most obvious question, how shall this be since, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The image of that overshadowing of the Holy Spirit is a picture in the Old Testament of the overshadowing of the cloud at night that guided Israel. The cloud during the day, excuse me, and the fire at night, the overshadowing on the temple in the tabernacle. Say, I am with you. I am present with you. You are my people. I am your God. In a very holy way, the Holy Spirit comes over her and implants the divine seed in her womb. The image of the Greeks in that time was God's having sex with human, humans. Not in this case. Beautiful, holy moment of God's present and saying, this divine seed, this child of mine, is going to come through you to all humanity. Read on. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. Another miracle took place for John the Baptist's birth, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, then behold, I'm paying attention. I'm listening. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Beautiful and holy picture of how God brought into this world in humanity the divine seed that would make Jesus totally man and totally God. Back to Matthew 1. The trouble was that Mary came back from her time with Elizabeth, we're told in Luke chapter 1 and 2, and she was pregnant. And she sees Joseph again, and Joseph has an issue. 
wondering exactly, even though Mary probably told him, understanding what he is to do. What does this mean? What am I to do? You're pregnant. I haven't touched you. What's going on? And he's pondering these things in verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly because of her very pregnant state, and they had not come together as man and wife. Yet even though in Jewish law they were, they were really truly married in one sense. That's how binding that time was for them. But he's a just man, a keeper of holiness, and he's compassionate, and he's gracious. And he says, I don't know what to do. I love this woman. I don't understand what's going on. So I will do this quietly. And he goes to bed thinking about these things. Look at verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit and she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. His name Jehovah saves, or God saves, or Jehovah is salvation. And in his name, this child, his mission is given because God is sending him to save his people from their sins. A name, a mission, what he is to do. Read on. The angel is not done. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. These good Jewish folk knew the prophecies And he quotes from Isaiah 7.14. He is the one that Isaiah was talking about. It was far beyond the prophecy of that moment in time in Israel's history. The angel gives God's intent and promised word as being fulfilled in this baby in Mary's womb. Another name, this name, is who this child is. The name of Jesus is his mission to save his people from their sins. Emmanuel means this is God with us. This is who he is. It separates Christ from all the prophets. This is not God in that body. It was God himself, God with us in humanity. Not half God and half man. Not God inhabiting a human body, but the perfect God with us in humanity. The unblemished sacrifice for our sins. No sin nature from Adam in this child. Look at Joseph's response. How would you respond? I mean, that's a profound and Incredible thing to think that Jehovah is with us in my wife's child. 
We know the understanding doesn't come for some time. Who is this boy? Even though they heard the words of the angel, both of them. God with us. I thought he was the hovering smoke and the fire and this presence in the temple. Here's God with us. Here's the Messiah. We have been waiting for centuries and here he is. And Mary's carrying him. I can't imagine his stunning profoundness as he tried to grasp all that in, our, in his human mind. Verses 24 and 5 tells us spirit. When Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. I don't understand all this. I'm hearing the word of God, but I am going to obey. She's pregnant. We haven't touched each other, but this is God's child. And he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he obeyed again and called his name Jesus. So holy was that moment. So holy was it understand that he did not consummate the marriage until after the birth of Jesus. Shows his understanding of something profound is taking place in her biological body that's more than just from Mary, but from heaven itself. I want us to reflect a little bit on the wonder what has taken place and what that means. Here's the big idea this morning. God, true to his love, true to his word, saves us from our sins. Say it again. God is true to his love, true to his word, save us from our sins. How do we understand that? First of all, it's all about God. He is with us. He kept his word. How often do you trust the word of people at work in your neighborhood, your community? God trusts trusted us to take his word. He, he gave himself in his word. He kept his word. We obey his word. It's all about his work in us. He came to us. He created us. He sustains us. He pursues us. He makes reconciliation happen. He brings life to the walking dead Paul is very clear. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. It is all of him who gives us life again, gives us a way to heaven, the way to really truly live in this life for his honor and his glory. But secondly, it's all about us. It's all of God for all of us. In other words, we get God. That's how great his love is for his image bearers. We have value to him. We are recipients of his rescue plan, of his reconciliation plan. We are loved 
by him. In the middle of that love, we begin to say it is still all of God, but it's all of his love for those whom he created. 1 John 4. Turn with me there. The, the disciple who leaned on the Lord's shoulder loved him implicitly, wrote the Gospel of John in these epistles. Listen to his words. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, now notice this, In this, the love of God was made manifest or shown among us. Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 1 here, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live, quicken to life again through him. How is this love described? In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of, for our sins. That is the, the atoning sacrifice. The way he showed mercy. He took our sin on his body and he died the death that we deserve. How great is that love for our sins? And then, beloved, if God so loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another and God abides in us and his love is then perfected, perfected in us. That great love of God shown to us in Jesus for his image bearers is to be born out in love for one another. See how important this is for our life to understand our value to him. God quickens us. It's all about him. He loved us so much to give us his son to restore us to himself that we have value and we are to love others because no one has seen God in the context that we see each other. They see God through us and his love for his image bearers all around us. In fact, John says in John 13, if we don't have that kind of love, then the gospel is dead to us. That's how important a value we are to him. And he brought us to himself. And lastly, this gracious, loving act of God for us should drive us to our knees with gratitude and a life that reflects that. His mission accomplished in Jesus. How great is that love for us? And that is what love and grace does. It leads us to give him all the honor and the glory and the praise because he has saved us. And all of who I am is swallowed up in all of who he is because of his great love and his sacrifice for us. And it should change the way we relate to God. 
and to one another. A week ago Saturday, Nancy and I were coming home from Iowa women's game where they played Minnesota. Uh, They won, by the way. And it was late night, almost 11. And we were both tired. Had to come here, Urbana, early on Sunday morning. And I wasn't watching the speedometer. And I I saw these lights coming towards me. I looked down, it was, I was going 70, 72, just south of Troy Mills, almost home. Sure enough, one of our uh, Lynn County Sheriff deputies, fine young man, stopped me. I knew I was going 70, I just looked at it. And so the time he got to the window, I had my driver's license out, window down, and I said, sir, I am very sorry. He said, you, I clocked you at 70. I said, no, I just looked down. I saw your lights. I said, busted. I was going 70. He said, um, I see your registration. So Nancy hands me the registration. It was last year's. But I knew I had put the other one in there. I had folded it up. So we we're trying to find that. He said, you know, I think, how about a warning tonight? How about a warning? I said, I, I, I'm very great. I don't. That's fine. That's very nice of you. And then Nancy handed him the correct registration. And he looked at it and he said, you know, again, you're only two miles from home. Uh, Merry Christmas, no warning. We just kind of went, whoa. Mercy and grace from the God of the evening. (laughs) We were so blessed, you know. By his love extended to us when we didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. Sunday morning, I'm on my way to Urbana and I'm speeding. (laughs) And it hit me for the first time in this way. That guy was so gracious last night. Why am I doing this? You know what I'm saying? Why am I continuing to do this when he gave me such love and grace and mercy? And isn't that what God does to us? Even though he gives us everything and we continue to sin, he says, I'm still there. I forgive you. My mercy and grace is extended to you. I want to live better because of his great love for me. I don't want to speed as much as anymore because of that great love extended to me. Why would I continue to do that when I was treated so so lovingly and kind? That's what God did to us in Jesus. You look at Matthew 1 again. In this genealogy, we see his grace permeating the generations. You have four women in here. That is very rare in Hebrew genealogy. It always comes through the men. You have Tamar, who played the part of a prostitute with her father-in-law, Judah, to impregnate her. And from that seed came Perez, was part of the Messianic line. Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho, she was the great-great-grandmother of King David. How'd you like that in your family history? Ruth was a Moabite, not an Israelite. In other words, she was Palestinian. She was Arab. Bathsheba, 
committed adultery with David, her son, Solomon. Our spiritual genealogy reflects the very grace and love of God to us. In our messianic line, he's just preaching grace and mercy. So great is his love for his people. That led songwriter Isaac Watts to put it this way in the 18th century, and we sing it every holiday season. He writes, he rules the world with truth and what? Grace. And he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. In other words, it's all, all about him. But Isaac couldn't, he couldn't finish without saying, and the wonders of his love, and the wonders of his love, and the wonders, and the wonders, and the wonders of his love for me, for us, his image bearers. It's all of God, all of his love for us. And his love has been shown to us that we celebrate every single Sunday morning. I love you, here is my body. I love you, here is my blood. Do you believe in me? Don't forget that bread and that cup is a reflection of my great love for you as a payment for your sin. Thank you, thank you, Jesus. Father, sometimes we are lost for words to even think and describe how great you are and how much you love us. We don't deserve it. Every day we sin. Every day we wonder about things that we shouldn't and we should trust you implicitly and it's so hard. But you love us so much. And we can't move without you. We can't breathe without you. And you gave us a way out, a way to you if we just trust in your son. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for giving us Jesus. And we're going to see you again. The final reconciliation to come in heaven, and we are so grateful. So thank you for this moment, this morning, as we celebrate your death. We thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen.